Good morning. Let me, uh, as we begin this morning, um, let's talk about the uh, sort of the outline of the next the next two or three weeks that will end up this consideration of what I call the house rules for social justice. What I hope to do this morning is um, carry forward this, these practical ideas we've been talking about. And we've, we've intentionally sort of done this in, in the sense of, of sort of concentric circles. Society is, is obviously the interaction of people. And for a properly ordered society, a properly functioning society, a just society, then obviously it seems to me the fundamental thing that has to be ordered is the individual. And in flowing from that, families of individuals. And flowing from that, faith communities. And flowing from that, the larger community at whatever level we want to draw that, draw that circle. And so, you know, the way I sort of picture it in my mind is, and this has been said here a lot, that the primary way that we bring God's order into the world is through our own repentance, our own devotion, our own discipline, and then evangelism, telling people that good news. And within the church, making sure that we are encouraging each other to love and good works. And one of those primary things, and frankly in our, in our age, maybe more so than a lot of other ages, uh, and this doesn't diminish sort of big picture things that, that you know, might be attempted in terms of, in terms of, of trying to remedy specific issues. But in point of fact, it's very clear that, that, that the family is the fundamental underpinning of society. So if Christians can be family enhancers, if Christians can be thoroughly and totally devoted to family life with all that that entails, with all the forgiveness, with all of the sacrifice, with all of the bearing with, with all of the joy, with all of the encouragement, with all of the, the counsel and advice and all the things that go into family and sustain that and say, we will even be sacrificial 
in bad family situations, then we are looking distinctly unlike the world. And by the way, the goal of this whole thing is not explicitly to look distinctly unlike the world except to the degree that the world looks, is, looks unlike God's will. This is not a be different for different sake kind of thing, right? So, one of the, one of the main issues is that we've talked about is, you know, we all have a tendency, and I heard this said three weeks ago maybe. How many of you have heard of or read anything by David Platt? Wrote a book called Radical. Uh, has written some other things. Uh, he is a, he's a pretty amazing guy, um, and uh, he is a, a, a person that has really uh, put forward a message of uh, uncompromising Christianity. Let's really be disciples. That looks radical. That, is, that was his message, essentially, in that book. And he got before an audience and preached one of the greatest gospel sermons I have ever heard. And one of the points he made is, if the only places that the church is pushing on the culture is in the places that the culture already agrees with us, then we're really not helping much. So in other words, we can't just pick out the stuff that we're interested in because we feel like we've got a handle on that and press forward or push forward because we, we can stand on a solid ground on that. No, we have to be the repenters and we have to look at it in, a, in what I call a fully orbed, you know, it's not just two-dimensional, it's not just lines on a plane, it's the whole Megillah. And it's, you don't just pick out, I think that this is the fundamental thing. If we could get this right, then all the rest would fall into place. Pretty clear that that's not true. It's pretty clear. We've got plenty of empirical evidence that that is not true. So, as Christians, we're to be thinking about this from a fully orb standpoint. The main thing is the main thing. What is the main thing? The main thing is the, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And tough as this is, and this, again, remember concentric circles, throw the, throw the rock in the pond and watch what happens. The good news starts with bad news. The bad news is that we sin and fall short of the glory of God in tragic, harmful, evil, destructive ways. We do it personally, and certainly society does it, and the farther away a society is from God, the more they do it. Jimmy brought up a couple of weeks ago that... Certainly, the, the church has, for example, countenanced divorce in a way that 
It shouldn't have. It, it shouldn't have. And that's not to say we should have had inquisition squads. That is to say that we should have suffered with in marriage. Called people to repentance where they needed to be called to repentance. Uphold them where they need to be upheld. So the church has, capi has capitulated and therefore we have a lot of other now sins of the day that are justified on the basis of, well, you let that one go, so you need to let these go. That's wrong. It's not true. But that's not, and I'm not just talking about sexual sin. I'm talking about fully orbed, all around, what, what are we... What are we talking about here? But the point that Jimmy made is, in terms of these concentric circles, how this thing moves out, the fact of the matter is when you analyze the, st the statistics, it is very, very obvious that a lot of people that are being counted as Christians in surveys in terms of being divorced and, and all those kinds of things are not Christians in anything but their own mind. They're not acting as Christians. They are far from Christ. If they were ever close to Christ, they are fallen away. And, and the point is that what, what, does that what does that imply? That doesn't imply that our finger pointing gets harder as they get farther away. It means that we try to expand from the center and expand the love of God in the world. Which implies that we don't skip steps. That you can't, you can't jump from here over to here. You can't say, there are lots of poor people, for example, and if they had more money, they wouldn't be poor. So we'll jump over here and we'll get money from over here and we'll give it to these poor people. There are 25 steps in between here and here. In fact, we may be doing more harm than good if that's all we do. And that's generally all we do. It is way easier for me to write a check to some parachurch ministry than it is for me to work with somebody. I heard a guy that I really respect say, one of the best tests of your walk with God is how willing you are to be inconvenienced for his kingdom. That hit me in the gut. In the gut. But it also inspired me. And the point here is that we, that we talk to each other about these things. Am I being inconvenienced? Are you being inconvenienced? Here's what I'm trying to do. Help me build these muscles. Brother Frank knows. You can't, well, Gretchen knows. She's not here. But obviously you can't run that marathon without running a lot of shorter distances in between. You have to build muscles 
And you usually build muscles through stuff that's painful. So that's called discipleship. (laughs) That's called suffering with, getting our nose bloodied, making mistakes. But not, but not delegating the task. Certainly not delegating entirely. There are times that it's appropriate to delegate. But it's not appropriate to always delegate. I have to remind myself of that. Um, at Meg's wedding, my friend Bill, who, who preached that wedding, talked in terms of marriage as that, that central realm because so early in Scripture, God creates His image. He creates His delegated manager, His vice regent, so to speak, and tells him to rule, subdue, and have dominion. And those are freighted terms. Those are terms that sound like you're going to run over somebody with hobnail boots. But they are not. They are not. They are all about increasing love and decreasing chaos. The world as God created it was good. Man was very good. And he told man to turn the good into the very good. To expand, to be productive, to be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth with this, with this order. And then as we cracked and were broken by the fall, we had necessity for God to give us through his prophets what that looked like because we had a hard time understanding it. There are certain basic levels where no one is without excuse. No one has to have a revelation to understand certain things, Paul says. But the grace of God given to us in giving us further description of love. And then Jesus filling that description full is all about that. The whole earth is filled with his glory, the prophet said. So, that's the idea. Now, now, I've actually got time to do this. That's our background. We know that God has given us not just the grace of the law, which carried with it also curses for disobedience, but he is also now... Through His Spirit, He is writing that law on our heart as we will, what? Yield. As we will say, I'm not the center of the universe. I will yield to God. I will yield to God and allow Him to tell me, to not only tell me, but make it more and more clear and apparent as I am walking with Him what good and evil look like, what love looks like. 
So, what I want to do the next couple of weeks following this is allow those of you who have explicit ministries in the kingdom to talk about that. To talk about what was it that, that God put on your heart? Or what did you do the first time you tried this and did you get your nose bloodied and then did you seek the Lord and gain a better understanding? Whatever it looks like. And talk about what those look like because that's an encouragement. That's encouraging one another to love and good works. How did that come about? What encouragement would you have for people? But the second thing is, Tim has talked about this a lot. We all have giftings. This little bitty church is incredibly full of giftings. I think of Seal and the work that she does in teaching people, working with people. Jimmy does that. I think of... And then I think of, you know, Brian and Gil and guys who know their way around a balance sheet and an income statement, and a pro forma, which are business terms for sort of plotting, you know, what, 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 the, what the course of, a, of an enterprise ought to look like. Why is that important? Because as we saw in that poverty cure series, as we've seen in others, it's an investment process. It's on one level, there are temporary episodic situations where aid is what is called for. And it's just aid. It is just keeping somebody alive and housed and clothed. But that's always intended to be accompanied by something else. And that something else is equipping. This is not intended to be a long-term forever deal. We do not give in to the lie of the devil that says these people are incapable. And so we need to structure something that will take care of these people for as long as they draw breath. No, they are created in the image of God. And they may have, just as we have, suppress that image in a variety of ways. And they may have done it multi-generationally. And they may have done it from the beginning of their life to right now. But they are creating God's image. That's the good news. That is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is you no longer have to remain in this. God has made a way. Christ has laid down his life. Now it's your turn. This is good news. You get to do this. And you are equipped to do it. You are not left without resources. So how do we equip? Well, even in a little bitty church like this, for the kind of purposes that we're talking about, We've got more than enough resources. We've got financial resources to set up 
scholarship programs for people to go through technical school training, to get any sort of remedial, don't skip steps, any sort of remedial kinds of things that they need. We may be involved. We may be suffering with them as they learn how to read. We may be suffering with them as they learn how to budget. We may be suffering with them as they are suffering through this course they're taking. But the point is, we have the financial resources to make a lot of that kind of stuff happen. That is not, we're not talking here about a Harvard education. We're talking here about a shop class. We're talking here about learning what they used to call in the old days, and I can't think of an alternate term, but comportment, how to act. The greatest job skill a person can have is showing up on time every day. How many of you are familiar with Mike Rowe? Dirty jobs. This guy is so passionate about this. And let's see if I can find it. One of the things I love, and this is something that I struggle with when I was teaching at Franklin Classical School, and I've seen it, I've seen, I've seen it over and over. And I've seen it not I've seen it as much in well-to-do households, maybe more in well-to-do households, than I've seen it in less well-to-do households. But the whole idea of follow your passion, I can't do that unless I love it. First of all, I haven't found the job that I love every aspect of, and I've done a bunch of different things. What he says is, I do, he's got a... You guys, if you want to look this up, it's called the SWEAT Pledge. SWEAT is an acronym. Skill and work ethic aren't taboo. And I love this. His fourth point. I do not follow my passion. I bring it with me. That is so profound, it just makes me hurt. Just teaching somebody that. Let me tell you, that's life-changing stuff. But what, we, what I want to do is I want to skip the step. I want, to, I want to jump over five steps. See, what we have is the equipping here to sequentially and incrementally help folks. What helps them most and foremost is repenting and believing the gospel. Tracy? Exactly. Yeah. 
Hold them accountable. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're suffering with. You are, you are suffering with. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's heavy lifting. It's, that's, it's hard, hard work. And unfortunately, in the public school system, it doesn't have that old-timey covenantal aspect that was part of what schooling was. The folks at home were supporting the teacher, not the kid. If any of you all ever want the most refreshing hour or so, maybe two, that you could possibly spend, I would encourage you to make an appointment to go see the KIPP Academy in East Nashville. K-I-P-P. Knowledge is Power Program. Uh, two Harvard graduates went to work for teacher, Teach uh, for America saw that a lot of what was being done was not really helping and said what would, what would help. And these are, in most cases, charter schools. They are now in 20 or 30 cities. The one here is run by a young man who is a graduate with, uh, with Lois's niece from the University of Virginia. He is a marvelous guy. Um, and they have, their motto is, work hard, be nice. They go, they go to school at 7.30 in the morning, and they leave at 5.30 in the afternoon. They have never admitted a child. And this hadn't been on purpose. It's been the nature of the beast. They have never admitted a child that was reading at better than two grade levels below their attained grade. They now have either the second or the third highest TCAP scores in Nashville. 
But what does that entail? That entails a lot of hard work. I watched a sixth grade teacher teaching a math class. Now, I was the kid, and we had blackboards back in my day, and we used to have to go work problems on them. And I was the kid that had bad dreams about going to the board, and I was in my underwear. And everybody was laughing at me. I watched this woman, and let me tell you, these are not classrooms with 13 children. These are classrooms of 40. But it's a covenantal model. Randy went into the neighborhoods. They're in the hood in East Nashville. They occupy an old, formerly beautiful building that was built back uh, in the Depression when they built a lot of beautiful uh, school buildings to keep people employed. Uh, and they only occupy part of it because they can't keep it all up. I watch, and, and what, they, what he did is he, is he went out and he evangelized. And they make a covenant. They say, we will lay down our lives for these kids. These kids, let me think, almost 70% of them, I believe, not just do the 7.30 to 5.30 deal, but they come in on Saturday for half a day. So they say, we'll lay down our lives for these kids. Then they say, this child has to apply themselves. And then the third and the most important thing, and this is, I think, what Tracy's backstory is on most of this, is what environment do they come from? They teach these parents how to create a learning environment and how to have expectation. They've never had expectation. Now, there's a certain amount of self-selection into that, and they are, they are first to admit it. But there's no, there, there is no genetic self-selection. There's attitudinal self-selection. And it is a beautiful thing to behold. I was weeping almost when I heard a mother who had sent her two sons there, and one of them was resistant. He didn't want to go. He had buddies that he hung with at the school that he went to before. And how this school had over time, and she was in the game too, how they changed their lives and how she had gone back and gotten her GED. That's, that's ruling, subduing, and having dominion. That is pushing back chaos. That is saying there's a new paradigm. I mean, and, and Nick won't mind me saying this, but Nick Brown, who can't get here on Sunday mornings because he's going to Belmont and working, has to work on Sundays to, to help pay for going there. Uh, but Nick Brown is in that classic scenario of the bucket full of crabs. And he was the one person in his family that said, I'm going to go a different path. And what's happening now is a combination of things. He's being pulled back. And for the first time, and I said, and I said this to him, and, and I've, I've developed a wonderful relationship with him. I said, I said, I hear doubt creeping into your mind. I hear your original commitment wavering. You can't do that. 
you can't go there. That's encouraging one another to love and good works. I'm not talking about that in terms of me. I'm talking about that in terms of what Tracy's doing. I'm talking about that in terms of what Jimmy's doing at the jail. I'm talking about that in terms of what Frank's doing at the jail and what Taz is doing. The point is that what we're calling people to is something that will, we know, be beneficial. Praise God that we had that we grew up in an environment, holy moly, my mother took me and had, had my intelligence tested about three or four times and could not get over the fact that I would not do math. And she, she never let up. And I just wrote that on her birthday card today. Thank you for not letting me be myself. Unlike the old Sly and the Family Stone song, I want to thank you. Who was that? Was that Sly? No. Who was that? Let me be myself. Please don't let me be myself. So. Let Karen tell you also, uh, because everything you said, you saw in Kenya at the school in Winya. Talk about how they pre were preparing the ascending eighth grade to the passion that the teacher brought with to the classroom. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> she's looking at me, most of the time she's already on top of me before I finish my sentence. I was going to say. He wanted to follow his passion, in other words. And, and that, well, that's the point, is we had skipped steps. We had written checks and said, this will get her done. And we had torpedoed 
the whole educational model such as it existed. We had actually, frankly, we had subverted a good man in his ministry. We had made him less than diligent in his ministry because he knew that there was no accountability. We were going to send the money, come rain or shine, whatever happened. And what was happening was the commitment of both the teachers because of what he was modeling and the children was going down, 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 down. They weren't passing the, 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 the state test. Now we tie, we tie this money to performance to some degree. Now, this is always with input. But everybody, and it has empowered the administration of the school. They are now doing the same thing on their own that we read about in When Helping Hurts. Locally, which is where it ought to happen. Which is where it ought to happen. The, the term moral, moral proximity. The closer you are to something, one, the more responsibility you have for it. And secondly, the more you can bring to it, the more you can suffer with it. And then subsidiarity is, is a fancy term that's really largely the same thing. It's that you seek to do things as close to the source as they can possibly be done. That when you delegate this stuff, unfortunately, unwittingly, because of human nature, you tend to sabotage the whole process because... The ends don't become the ends anymore. The sustenance of the organization that is supposed to be aimed at the ends becomes the end. Maintaining the, you know, sort of maintaining the beast is the, is the tendency in these situations. And we grieve over that. We grieve over that. We hurt a good man by not holding him accountable. We repented to him, and we, we repented, and it has changed things. But I'm so encouraged. We have an amazing level of talent and resourcing. And by the way, so do the people that we will be helping. That's what we have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to say, these folks are incapable they're just like this. Is that the gospel? Not. It's not. So, I personally, and I'm open to challenge, to amendment, to addition, to whatever, but I would like for us as a body to be engaged in praying to God to show us our own, our own giftings, the things that we have because we were given them by God and the things we have because, praise God, they got developed because my mother wouldn't give up and let me just do the easy thing. Now I... I feel so guilty when I just do the easy thing that it's almost the other side of the coin. But what do, we, what, what do we come up with when we think about these things? 
you know, it's sort of the old, uh, what was the, the thing, a million points of light or whatever. You know, the point is that, that we all bring something. Hey, make notes. Write it down. Let's talk about it. Let's submit ideas. How could we? What does it look like? Because if we put our hand to the plow, we don't want to look back. What does it look like to help people get equipped even to just hold a meaningful, a, a menial job? And by the way, that's something else Mike Rowe says that I agree with. There ain't no such thing as a menial job. I love that old song, this is my job to be sweeping up this mess and that's the thing people expect from me, it's my job to be better than the best, and that makes a day for me, that uh, it was a great country song. You know, a ditch digger for the Lord has probably more time to think about the things of God than I do answering telephones and, and putting out fires all day. I had a man say that to me one time, an elder in the church, and it was, it just hit me, profound. If I'm inclined that way, my goodness gracious, I can meditate on the things of the Lord all day long. I have a freedom that maybe some other man doesn't have. But the point is, what can we do? What do we bring to the table? What giftings do we have? We know we have the financial giftings, for example, to do what we're talking about. To create a, if we needed to, a foundation or what have you. I don't know that there needs to be an intermediary organization, but to create a pool of funds that could be dedicated to whatever it might be. Paying for child care for it. We've got, again, this is something we've talked about. This is maybe the biggest issue, the biggest problem, is we have almost two generations, actually more than two generations, of functional widows and orphans. Because we structured welfare programs in such a way that it really undermined the need for a man to be involved with their children. Well, we know that outcomes are not as good when there's not a man involved. We also know that poverty almost always accompanies that. We know that it probably is also counterproductive in many cases for a woman to work a 40-hour week and become more sufficient, maybe not self-sufficient, but more sufficient what does that do to the kids, latchkey kids, and all that? So what do we do? Let's put on our thinking caps. How can we help? Those are, those are things that we can do right here in Franklin. Right here in Franklin. How can we do it without causing more pain? How can we do it to the glory of God? Because what we're looking for is the glorification of God in the stories that come out. When Frank tells stories about these prisoners, and they may, have t- they may have 10 or 20 more years in prison, but they're not living like they're in prison anymore. 
They may be more free than, than people on the outside. See, that's giving glory to God. That is, that looks like redemption. So anyway, that's, uh, over the next couple of weeks, uh, I'm going to be getting with folks and, and asking them to come up and talk about the ministries they're, they're involved in, how they got involved in that, what were the challenges, what were the encouragements, etc. So thank you all.